0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day.
1: Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to another episode of History Hack. Alex, who have we got on today?
2: So we're continuing our dedicated week to African-American history, and today we have Mark Peterson with us. He's a historian and entrepreneur, an African-American born in the Jim Crow South, as were his parents before him. And he's here today to tell us about his very personal connection to Dr. Martin Luther King. Mark, welcome, and thank you so much for joining us.
0: Oh, Thank you so much for having me.
2: I'm really excited to learn more about Dr. King from you and to learn more about how your story ties in with him. We'll quickly talk about how he was so prominent by the events at Selma. But then we'll also, I'm going to ask you, because I know that you're very interested in some of the other stuff he was doing and his other um, theories. But by 1955, I think it's safe to say that Dr. King was the most visible persona out there in the fight for civil rights, wasn't he? How did he get there?
0: Well, oh, I think he was. Uh, some people would say he was preordained. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he was born Michael King, and uh, name was changed to to Martin because there was kind of a a destiny that his family felt that he was uh, that he was born into, that he was expected to step into. Uh, after uh, re- receiving his degrees and taking a leadership role in Montgomery. Uh, and, and then taking on the mantle of the civil rights movement and the bus boycott, I think that's really what thrust him onto the national stage because of the outcome of that particular protest. When you organize an entire city of people uh, and take them from work to home every day for a full year and keep them off of a bus line that refuses to let you sit uh, in a uh, uh, in the front of the bus that's going to get some attention and i think that's what people realized by that point that he was going to be a different type of leader uh, by 1955 people knew that his philosophy was something that was completely unique in terms of uh, organizing a, a, a national movement when he aligned his thinking with that of Gandhi and saying that this revolution, this reform of American society could take place in a nonviolent way. Uh, so he um, had a, 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 an expectation going into his early pastoral career that he would be an activist.
2: And that 1955, as you say, that bus boycott in Montgomery, Alabama, is what really, that's the catalyst for his future um, career, isn't it? Um, you just briefly outlined it for us. That for our listeners, um, who a lot of whom aren't in the US and maybe don't know, uh, so it was based on segregation, wasn't it? it was the fact that black people were expected to sit at the rear of the bus and they weren't allowed to choose a seat, basically. And so Martin Luther King took everybody off the buses.
0: Right. Right. So you had Rosa Parks, who was the individual who what became the uh, the target of the, the protest. She decided to defy the uh, regulations and sit in the front of the bus. Uh, prior to that, African-Americans were relegated to the back of the bus or in cases where the buses were crowded, were forced to get off the bus. Uh, and she refused to Um, give up her seat when told uh, to move to the back of the bus. Uh, And then the subsequent outcome was a protest that led to um, all African Americans deciding not to ride that bus for uh, over 365 days. So that's not a a small feat when you think of a a city, the size of Montgomery, Alabama. Mm -hmm. Uh, And you look at the number of individuals that had to continue to find a way to um, uh, make sure that they were going to their jobs, fulfilling their, their their duties, so that they could be paid and feed their families. You know, those are the unsung heroes that a lot of the civil rights document uh, documentaries don't don't look at. Those are individuals who had to march along with him, but also suffer the wrath of of the protests uh, and the backlash uh, that went along with it. And that is a a a, 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 a a serious commitment to manage for that amount of time. That's not your typical protest where you show up for a day and and march. That's a year of walking, riding, and staying focused on what the true outcome was, which was to change the policy uh, in the uh, in the state and in the in the uh, in in the south.
2: Because I think it also it speaks volumes as to um, how inspirational figure he was. That people were willing to do that with him, as you say, to suffer that hardship and suffer that wrath for 300 or days.
0: Yeah, and and you know, fortunately, there were forerunners uh, prior to his time uh, in Montgomery and in Alabama who were trying to get traction uh, around these issues, uh, both in Selma and in Montgomery. There were people who were trying to change those policies, who were trying to get people to vote, uh, and they could not get the, the type of visibility that he could bring to the table. And I think that's where you have um, a real difference in some of the, the, the prior leaders is that he had the force of personality, but he was also riding the tailwinds of new technology. Uh, as we see when we get to Selma, uh, the broadcast television Mm -hmm. became a real uh, factor in giving the civil rights movement additional uh, uh, power to influence those people who were on the middle of the fence or those individuals who had not yet formed opinions on what was going on in in the country. Prior leaders Um, may have had uh, prominence, but they didn't have the ability to speak to a nation in the way that Dr. King could. So we we found ourselves uh, with lightning in a bottle at that point. Uh, An individual who was uh, extremely erudite um, could motivate and inspire intellectuals and the common man at the same time, uh, and then a technology that could help amplify his voice uh, to get people to come and participate in protests from all over the country. And we saw that culminate uh, in in Selma and in in Washington, Mm D.C. What about in
2: 1962, the struggle against segregation in Albany, Georgia?
0: Now, that was one of his toughest um, uh, protests because part of Dr. King's nonviolent philosophy required uh, personal sacrifice but it also required a reaction from local officials that would garner the type of attention that would stimulate that kind of change. And when officials um, learned of his tactics, he, um, there, were, there were ways that you could defeat it. You, know, you could uh, nonviolently and, and, and less aggressively uh, uh, arrest people. Uh, put them into jails and then addressed, uh, you know, the the issue head on. And Dr. King ran into some of that as he approached Selma and not in not every and not every instance was he able to get the outcome, particularly when you had an equally strategic um, local government and an equally patient uh, local sheriff. And so Albany was a culmination of those types of events and did not yield the type of outcome Dr. King wanted. And so Selma became a, um, an opportunity to rebound rebound from what happened in, in, in Albany, uh, looking for a, a, a opportunity where he could get the visibility to thrust these issues that, are, that were happening at a local level onto a national scene. But Albany... Uh, was a good was a was a good wake up call for the uh, for the movement and a good opportunity for Dr. King to go back and be uh, a tactician and look for a, a richer environment where he could emphasize the issues
2: you've already mentioned washington this is 1963 and this is where he delivered his famous i have a dream speech on the steps right. of the lincoln memorial so can you describe to us a bit more about those events obviously everybody knows that speech or at least knows mm-hmm. that line of that speech but how did he come to be on those steps and what was he trying to achieve there
0: well that uh is a you know that that's probably one of the most famous Speeches that you can um, that it that the world knows of outside of what happened in Selma. So in 1963, he helped organize the uh, the march, and he wanted to paint a picture of an integrated and unified uh, America uh, when he uh, did the march on on on, uh, on Washington. And so, Dr. King, along with many other leaders, thought that DC would be the perfect place to have this march and to speak to the uh, collective conscience of America. And, you know, there were a laundry list of other prominent leaders who played organizing roles in in getting that march together. But when you, you know, look at the the result of it, uh, thousands of, of, of people. Who gathered uh, in D.C. in 1963? Uh, his speech, uh, in my opinion, that was kind of a a, a a real turning point in the movement because it uh, activated far many more non-blacks uh, in understanding the true struggles of, of what was going on uh, in the uh, in the country. Um, he. Um, worked alongside a number of, of, of groups, as you know, being the leader of the Southern Leader uh, Leadership uh, Conference and other groups like SNCC that were doing more local organizing uh, and then local pastors to uh, also play a, a major role in getting that uh, getting the Washington, D.C. march underway. Dr. King um, uh, to me, uh, in, in, that, in that instance, in that speech, um, like I said, defined the, the future path of what would be to come in laying out that the issues that were being tackled weren't always going to be issues that dealt with just the social aspects of American society.
2: Mark, would you mind at this point if we asked you to read the end of that speech?
0: Yeah, a powerful part of the speech is where he picks up and starts with, we must continue to work with the faith that unarmed suffering is redemptive. Go back to Mississippi. Go back to Alabama. Go back to South Carolina. Go back to Georgia. Go back to Louisiana. Go back to the slums and the ghettos of our northern cities, knowing that somehow this situation can and will be changed. Let us not wallow in the valley of despair. I say to you today, my friends, though and even though we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men... Are created equal, to me, that's one of the most powerful parts of that speech, where he gives you a reason to fight for what is real in America, that dream. And Mm -hmm. that dream is uh, the opportunity to be an equal participating part of America's society, all of that society.
2: There's a key line just near the end of the speech as well, isn't it? Where he says, and if America is to be a great nation, this must become true. And it still just holds so much weight.
0: It does. Absolutely.
1: But Dr. King was much more than just an activist, wasn't
0: he? Yes. Yes. I think he was much more than an activist. If I were to categorize Dr. King, uh, I categorize him as a strategist, a tactician, Uh, a businessman, a negotiator, uh, a politician. Uh, He was all these things wrapped in uh, a clergyman who had a view of religion uh, and politics and economics that was unlike any other leader in his time. Mm -hmm. So he was a multifaceted person that uh, could bring a lot to bear in terms of his strategic and and uh, organizing uh, capabilities, um, so yes, he was somewhat of a of 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 uh, a different Renaissance civil rights leader than than had been seen at the time.
2: Um, so by 1964, he had won the Nobel Peace Prize for attempting to combat racial inequality through nonviolent resistance. And he had also become the first president of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. Um, right. Mark, this is where your background comes into play. You were raised in Selma, Alabama, um, and it was his role as the head of the SCLC that brought, us, that brought him there in 1965. But what was he hoping to achieve? And tell us about Selma at that time.
0: Uh, Selma, uh, when you look at Selma from its demographics, that was pretty much Selma's peak population, uh, size, uh, economic wealth compared to what it is today. Selma was a thriving community. It was a separated community where blacks, though uh, nearly a majority in the county and in in the city of Selma, uh, had no representation. Less than 1% of the African-American population was registered to vote. So though there was economic power in the black community, uh, there were two hospitals, many doctors. Uh, There was a school system uh, there that was controlled by blacks. There was a lot of wealth being generated. There was no political representation to help harness that economic power at the time. And there were many leaders who were trying to correct that. So the Dallas County Voters League, who was headed up by Amelia Borton, was trying to get people to see the benefit of registering to vote and to uh, get leadership that would represent the interest of African-Americans in Selma at that time. Uh, Having not gotten a lot of traction, she invited in uh, the uh, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee to try to do do local voter registration campaigns uh, in the, uh, the city of Selma and in the county of, 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 of Dallas County, not getting a lot of traction because of the organized resistance from the registrar and from political figures and law enforcement uh, in Selma. When I say organized resistance, uh, it was everything from Uh, education, literacy tests, to sometimes violence against those who were organizing the voter registration campaigns, all in an attempt to make sure that individuals did not register to vote.
2: And for our listeners at this point, it is the legal right of these African Americans to register to vote, isn't it?
0: Absolutely, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And so the, the attempts that were put in place were to keep them from exercising that right. Um, at the point where they were still not getting a lot of traction, Amelia Boynton, Dr. Uh, Frederick Reese, reached out uh, to Dr. King and wanted to pursue a different strategy to try to change what was going on in Selma. The difference was you know, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee was a lot of localized uh voter registration campaigns, all in a goal to try to stand up local leadership. Dr. King's approach, as I mentioned when we talked about Albany and what failed in Albany, was to do tactical strikes to get more visibility and then harness the collective conscience of a nation to change the laws at the national level, which then could be enforced at the local level. And so when he received the request, he saw Selma as a very ripe opportunity because there was already organized leadership that was committed to trying to make a change and a population that was behind that local leadership and that had suffered some of the reactions of the local government and local law enforcement. You had a sheriff and Sheriff Clark, who they anticipated would be unhinged, if pushed in the wrong directions, and that could play to the benefit uh, of the movement. So Dr. King at that point saw Selma as a great second chance opportunity to push the issues of uh, voter registration and voter rights uh, in the uh, in the South forward.
2: And you mentioned his tactical approach. His approach in this case, wasn't it, it was to have a massed, peaceful march from Cell uh, mark to Montgomery 54 is it kilometers 54 kilometers it 54 miles
0: right 54, yeah, 54
2: miles. miles down the highway mm-hmm. just a mass group of people, people peacefully marching from one to the state capitol um, to make themselves known wasn't it
0: right? So that that was kind of the uh, culmination of a couple of different events. So one of the voter registration drives took place about 15 miles down the road in Marion. Alabama, Mm -hmm. Uh, and during one of those uh, one of the one of the events, one of the marches uh, and protests, a gentleman by the name of Jimmy Lee Jackson uh, was shot, uh, and that was uh, by a state trooper by the name of James Fowler, Uh, and that took place uh, in February. Uh, I think it's February 26th of 65. Jimmy Lee uh, was a deacon and an activist. Uh, his mother was there at, as, uh, at that at that march, uh, peaceful march, and she was being attacked uh, by the by the trooper. Uh, Jimmy Lee intervened and was subsequently shot and later died. And that sent a spark through uh, the community in Marion, uh, in Salmon, Dallas County, and became the impetus for the march it was for voter registration but it also became a march that was going to put forth the issues that african-americans were facing when it came to law enforcement and violence uh, that was perpetrated by law enforcement on blacks even in nonviolent, peaceful situations and so uh, Jimmy Lee became a rallying point uh, for the march that brought a number of people, who again were fence setters, onto the uh, onto the, the the into the march because they wanted to have justice for for, for Jimmy Lee. Mm-hmm. So. And when you look at today's situations that we're facing, um, much of what Dr. King talked about leading up to the march and after the march about police violence and uh, voter registration, some of those issues we're still fighting with and in the throes with uh, even today.
2: So now the first attempt is a complete failure. Can you tell us about
0: that? Yeah, so the first attempt was on March 7th. Uh, and it was led by some prominent individuals that we know of today, John Lewis and Amelia Boynton. Uh, Dr. King was not uh, in attendance uh, at, the, at that first march, and the marchers uh, began their um, marching and got to the base of the Edmund Pettus Bridge uh, and became aware of The state troopers, uh, the newly deputized uh, citizens, uh, and Jim uh, and uh, uh, Sheriff Clark and his men who were on the other side of the uh, of the bridge awaiting the uh, the marchers. Um, From their perspective, they believed they had the legal right to enforce uh, an injunction which restricted uh, the uh, the march from taking place. Uh, but the marchers felt like they were, uh, in the words of Dr. King, who believed that unjust laws uh, are just that. <laughs> They're not just, mm-hmm. and you don't have to follow them. We're going to push forward anyway. Uh, when they reached uh, the other side of the bridge, uh, the call was made, and the troopers on horses, uh, the de- newly deputized citizens and uh, Sheriff uh, Clark's men moved in with uh, batons, with uh, men on horseback, sticks, uh, and uh, tear gas, and attacked the protesters. Uh, Amelia Boynton, who you know, will later uh, again be, received national prominence, and John Lewis, uh, who is a uh, congressman in, in Georgia today, uh, were beaten severely. Uh, Amelia Borton was beaten unconscious, and John Lewis was uh, beaten uh, nearly to death on the uh, on the foot of the bridge. Uh, dogs, uh, German shepherds, were released on the crowd. Water hoses uh, were were sprayed on the uh, protesters. Uh, it was a horrific scene, uh, a scene that was captured uh, by the press. It was captured uh, on uh, televised media, and it was broadcast to the world. And it became uh, the mirror reflection of American society that most Americans didn't want to see and didn't want to accept. But at that point, it was in their living room, uh, and it became um, the issue that Dr. King was able uh, to uh leverage and to put forth, particularly in front of pastors around the nation and say, if you not only believe in this country, but if you believe in what you preach, you can't allow this uh, to happen. You can't allow this to continue. You can't allow black protesters to suffer the brunt of this type of hostility. You have to come and march and be shoulder to shoulder uh, with those protesters, and show that there's a different America. So when he put that call out after that incident, um, it uh, it 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 changed the perspective of the march because it put local and national political leaders on the hot spot. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you could turn your eye away from what was happening to black protesters. But suddenly when you have a diverse group of protesters that also included many prominent celebrities, you could no longer step back and ignore that. And Dr. King, as I mentioned, was a brilliant tactician. Uh, He knew that that first march was something that had to happen, Mm -hmm. but he also knew that that, that that event would be the trigger point to activate people to come from all over the nation to stand shoulder to shoulder with him. So yeah, the it it it, it is a is a date as has been said about World War II that will live in infamy when we look back on American society. But it was also a turning point in what was right for America, for because those who wanted to stand for that came to Selma uh, and put their lives on the uh, on the line. As we would see a couple of nights later in Reverend Reeb, who was attacked and killed. Um, a, uh, this Reverend. is a white man, isn't it? Yes. He's he come down from,
2: is it is it Pennsylvania? Forgive me, I've forgotten. Um, Massachusetts, yes. That's right, down. yeah. Mm-hmm. So he came down from the Northeast, uh, right. and a white man to take part in this, put his life on the line, and, and it cost him his life, didn't it?
0: It did, it did. And you, you, know, you, you saw that even before and after the, 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 the successful march. Uh, that there were individuals like Reverend Reeb uh, who were killed. Uh, he was beaten uh, and, and beaten uh, to the point where he died from his injuries. And like uh, Jimmy Lee became the face of a situation that many believed had to change. So even if you weren't completely sold on all the tenets of what Dr. King Uh, preached in terms of the nonviolent change that he hoped to see, there were many Americans who just could not live with that sort of violence against American citizens. And so they came, you know, in the thousands uh, to Selma to right that wrong and to push for that change.
1: And the second attempt, Dr. King had made a deal, hadn't
0: he? Yeah, so the the second attempt uh, took place, on March 9th. And then, you know, Dr. King was still in the middle of a uh, negotiation with the president and with, uh, the, with uh, the, the, the federal judges on whether or not the march could move forward. Not having the legal standing to, uh, to march meant that they were uh, not going to get the federal protections to march from Selma to Montgomery. And so Dr. King had to, again, be a tactician and figure out a way to make a statement while also staying within the law. And so the march, the second attempt, uh, they marched shoulder to shoulder, two by two, to the Edmund Pettus Bridge uh, and kneeled in prayer uh, along with several other prominent clergy who had traveled to Selma to be a part of the march, Uh, and then after uh, praying, they returned back to the church where they uh, initiated the march. Some people saw that as a defeat. Uh, Some people were angry that they turned back and didn't push forward because um, Sheriff Clark's men, the state troopers, the exact Scenario that had happened in the first March on uh, the fir- uh, first of March um, were, were setting themselves up to, re- to repeat again, even though the uh, troopers and the, um, the deputies were giving them the indication that they could move forward across the bridge. Dr. King suspected that we, they would get the same outcome and he would get branded as a, um, uh, a criminal. For not respecting the injunction that was sent down by the the federal courts, so uh, a tactician's move uh, was the right move in that in that instance, uh, but uh, it gave Balt time for them to get the ruling they needed to get the federal protection for the marchers that would eventually come a few days later.
1: That's stamps.com. Code program. And tell us about the final attempt to march.
0: So the final uh, attempt uh, was uh, put in place once the, the federal protections were, were afforded to the marchers, FBI, um, the uh, newly controlled National Guard that was federalized by uh, President Johnson. Uh, But prior to that, there were some tactical moves that were uh, put in place or at least attempted uh, to try to give local leaders face-saving attempts to to be on the right side of history. So George Wallace um, spent time with Johnson trying to hammer out an agreement where these marchers could be protected by uh, state officials. That was unsuccessful. And when I when I kind of try to paint the scenario of how Dr. King was involved in all of this, uh, he was staying with uh, with Richie uh, Jackson, uh, Dr. Jackson's uh, wife and 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 family. He stayed with them in Selma uh, on the street that's now named for Amelia Boynton. Uh, he would, was on the phone during that period. With the president trying to figure out when th- they would take that next step, when they would take the successful march, Miss um, Jackson's daughter indicated that when they received the telephone bill at the end of the month, it was for fifteen thousand dollars.
2: Oh my God!
0: <laughs> now fifteen thousand dollars in nineteen sixty-five dollars buys you a house, right? Well, yeah, back then fifteen thousand would buy you a mansion yeah uh $15,000 to even a prominent doctor like Dr. Jackson was uh an amount that you just could not you, you couldn't raise to pay uh in, in order to to keep uh, a utility on like a telephone they told Dr. King about the bill Dr. King told the president and suddenly the bill disappeared there was no bill
2: mm-hmm.
0: so there were there were many Uh, different ways and tactics that Dr. King uh, worked behind the scene before that march took place. The ultimate culmination, as I mentioned, was uh, President Johnson, once the legal footing was in place, then activated the protections. And they put a limit of 300 marchers who could leave out of Selma and travel the 54 miles uh, to, to Montgomery. And so they they proceeded along at a at a generous pace from Selma after uh, getting uh, those those types of protections. And when I when I tell people about protections, people have to understand that that period was probably the most volatile Selma has ever seen. Dr. King, when he stayed with um, the Jacksons every night. Uh, the Secret Service would go through the entire house, take everything out of every shelf, go underneath every bed, crawl underneath the uh, the house and check for bombs mm-hmm. uh, every night. The Jacksons had a three-year-old daughter at the time that was also there in the home. And Dr. King lived in the state in the front room that faced the street, uh, which was called, um, uh, which is now uh, Amelia Boynton Street. Um, uh, they tell a story of the day before the March when a car went down that road and backfired yeah. uh, and Dr. King jumped out of the bed, hands shaking because he thought that was the attempt. So that was the day. Uh, they had a plan that when something like that would happen, they would put the small Jackson child in a laundry basket and throw her over the fence behind the house where neighbors would retrieve her and drive her off. And then they would try to protect Dr. King. So these were people who, leading up to this march, knew that this was not just something that uh, they would be threatened with on the day of the march. This was real terror that they lived with every day that they were even planning the march. And so that's uh, the backdrop that they had to negotiate in in order to get that, that third and final successful attempt underway.
2: Your family has very personal memories of the events of 1965, don't they? Your parents were in Selma?
0: Yeah, my parents uh, uh, got, uh, I think, a perspective from multiple angles. They're from Linden, Alabama, and that's where Dr. King's um, uh, counterpart, Reverend Abernathy's from, grew up in Linden, Alabama. Uh, Linden is kind of a bookend to Selma. It never saw any of the changes that you see in Selma. Uh, any of the type of registrations uh, or uh, voter activism. And so to have um, Reverend Abernathy, uh, who was Dr. King's right-hand man, uh, be from Linden uh, and then participate in Selma, it, uh, I got a chance to see the real difference uh, in the two worlds of what uh, Selma was like for my parents' then, and what Linden, Alabama was like for them, which was only 50 miles away. Uh, the gentleman who runs the newspaper, who was just na- uh, recently in, uh, made uh, national prominence in Linden, Alabama, because he wrote an article advocating for the Klan to come back and put down protesters. My grandmother was his nanny. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you you see the, the, the dichotomy that uh, my parents would face even just driving 50 miles uh, from uh, Linden, Alabama to, to Selma to see, you know, what took place uh, in, in, in that time period.
2: And um, so you, as an African-American growing up in Selma, what was your experience of race? And do you think that I, I'm, I'm from what you're saying, then do you think you benefited by what happened in 1965?
0: Oh yes. Yes. Um, Selma, um, to me, became the conscience of of the nation. Uh, it became the battleground where people would lay out many issues um, and 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 work them through to solution. The school I grew up in was not the school that that Dr. King was was that he was that he visited when he was. Um, there uh, in uh, in Selma. Uh, the middle school, which was three houses down from the house he lived in, was the high school, the segregated all-black high school uh, that was there prior to the march. It was the integrated middle school that I attended. Uh, and so the march uh, and the work that was done by the foot soldiers that were there prior to dr king and dr king's work in selma changed my entire life and you were a, chance- a debate champion weren't you right. um,
2: and your partner mm-hmm. uh, we our listeners know of her very well because she's john jordan who's a regular on our show it's his sister allegra um, and yeah. the two of you were an amazing team you went to state finals
0: And we did. State finals, went to nationals. Uh, I got a chance to, John was on the team as well. He was a few years uh, older than us, and he was a tremendous mentor. Um, Knew him, yeah, again, from elementary school, met Allegra in elementary school. Uh, And to get a chance to uh, grow up in a society which just a lifetime earlier did not exist in the way it existed for me, Mm -hmm. uh, gave me the opportunity to do a lot of what Dr. King wanted, which is to have a dream and then to actually achieve it, to have people look deep into my character uh, and judge me on that. Uh, and it was uh, a terrific experience. Our school was um, integrated It was uh, one of the best school systems in the state at the time, and when I wouldn't completely appreciate that until I went off to college in the Northeast and took my, my high school yearbook with me, and as my classmates in college started flipping through the yearbook, they saw pictures of prom. They saw black and white students dancing together. They saw integrated couples dancing together at the prom. And they were astonished. These were people who were from New York, from Pennsylvania, from Virginia, from California. And they had said, we didn't have a prom because people feared having an integrated prom. How is it that you in Selma, Alabama, were able to go to prom and have it look like that? Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, my answer to them was my class wasn't the first one to have it. That started happening in the late 70s. Mm-hmm. And so Selma got an opportunity to reset after the march, and though it wasn't perfect, it started to lay the infrastructure for what uh, you know could be uh, a great uh, community and a great society.
1: We think that Dr. King would approve of
2: the work that you do in Selma and in Tuskegee too. Can you tell us how you're making
0: a difference? Well, it. Uh, we were warned
2: that you would hate talking about yourself, but we yeah. got ticked off to ask you about <laughs> it because it is truly amazing work and, and yeah. it's so in the same vein as Dr. King.
0: Well, it um, it's it's kind of a, a double-edged sword of sorts. I, um, For all the good that I got out of Selma, I looked back on Selma after I graduated and got a chance to work in live around the world. And it wasn't the same Selma I grew up in. Um, The the integrated school, uh, the passionate community, the involved community, uh, the village that would raise its children, regardless of whether or not you had a blood connection, that was no longer there. And so, you know, leaving a great school, uh, after college, a school that many people didn't believe someone from the South would uh, would get a, get into, let alone graduate from, uh, and then to have a terrific career afterwards, I could have gone on and continued to do a lot of the things that I'd been trained to do, but I realized just based on the friendships that I still continue to have with Allegra, with John and, and many others from my childhood, that it was those relationships that gave me the perspective to be successful, gave me the, the context on which to, to, uh, to, to lay many of life issues and to make the right choices. That context was no longer there. Mm-hmm. So if a Mark Peterson came through Selma today, I don't think Mark Peterson would end up on this podcast talking to you about the things that he would have achieved and the people he would have met. And that broke my heart. It literally broke my heart. And so I remember telling Allegra back in 2011 or 2012, we have to do something. We got to figure out a way to try to give back and push Selma back in the direction that it was in 1987. And so I uh, did what I thought Dr. King would do and did what I was trained to do as a strategy consultant and just pull some of the initial data of what was going on in Selma uh, and what the problems were that were keeping people from living rich and fulfilled lives. And one of the things that I saw is that one of the larger groups in Selma that was underemployed were black women. And, the biggest issue they faced was, two biggest issues they faced were getting viable uh, places to live that were safe, uh, that were clean, that were places that you wanted to live, uh, and childcare. And so I then turned my, my time, my energy, my resources to trying to figure out how do I affect those things in Selma. Um, My first project was to try to get the city to invest in aviation maintenance, uh, which we have an airport that was left over from the military base. It's the airport that President Obama landed on with Air Force One. It's a fully operational airport. It's underutilized. Um, We could kick off an aviation maintenance program and suddenly high schoolers could be graduating and making forty thousand dollars a year, which would get them uh, a very good salary compared to what the average household income is now, which is less than half of that. Mm -hmm. Um, So I started down the path of doing those types of things with economic development. But then in my personal time, I started renovating houses. Uh, And every house that I renovate, I live in for at least six months, because if I don't want to live in it, I don't want anyone in Selma to live in it. Mm -hmm. Uh, And when I'm done with it, I turn it over uh, to a young family. Many of them are are single head of household women that have kids. And I give them a pledge that I don't raise the rent for 10 years. And that hopefully gives them an opportunity to build uh, a life where they have a house that I make sure it's maintained and repaired. And I cut the grass. Personally, I Uh, pay the utilities as part of that rent so it's a it's not a great deal for me but it's a great way for me to um, try to affect the type of change that I want to see in Selma and so it takes a toll on the body to go back and forth every week working on houses but there's so many that need work and there's so many people who need houses Mm. but that is um, you know part of of what I uh, have committed myself to do. The final thing is trying to then figure out ways to rebuild that economic engine that was in Selma during the 1960s when there were far many more businesses there that were controlled by African-Americans. And so I uh, reached out to Tuskegee uh, because of my uh, fond uh, uh Uh, view of of one of their uh, founders one of the one of the cornerstones of uh, of african-american agriculture booker t washington he's always been one of my uh, most revered uh, leaders Um, and and i reached out to them and and offered to try to build out a entrepreneurial incubator of sorts that would mimic what Booker T. Washington tried to do with farming and stimulate entrepreneurship. And so from 2012 up to the present, we've been hosting pitch contests where we try to identify technology and technologists and entrepreneurs and give them support and funds to try to grow businesses in the Black Belt South. And it has been a lot of fun seeing high schoolers, seeing college students participate in this contest and push ideas that I've, I, I quite frankly believe can, can be those next Googles, those next Apples, those next Amazons that can bring the type of resources and, um, and, and people to communities that really need them now. And so that has been another, again, you know, challenging effort because it, it, it just requires sustained focus and continuous um, uh, input to get people excited about those ideas. You know, unfortunately, you know, you look at the black community and there's innovation everywhere and you'll see that in many poor communities. Innovation is typically spurred by necessity. And as I uh, mentioned to you about Dr. King's bus boycott, very powerful political tool. But if you zoomed out and put it in the context of today's economy, we call that the sharing economy. A citywide uh, ride share experiment is exactly what Uber did in San Francisco. Now that company's worth billions of dollars because they figured out how to monetize ride sharing dr king politicized ride sharing and brought social change the black community has ideas like that every day they just hadn't figured out how to monetize them there's a company in china called home cook they match people up with uh, people who cook food at home and want to share it that company's worth three billion dollars
1: wow
0: Anybody that hears this podcast in the black community and in any part of the world will know that there's somebody in the black community who sells food every day to make money. Mm-hmm. Every day. If it's a cake, my own grandmother, every weekend, she would sell cakes, pies, and plates to raise money, to pay bills, to fund, buy medicine. Uh, the ideas are there hadn't figured out how to monetize them. And so my work with the the Selma Pitch Contest is to first show that the intelligence, the intellect, the innovation is already there. Let's figure out a way to monetize it and make change in the community.
2: It's just, I'm so glad Allegra told me to push you on that because that's incredible. It's just the stuff that you do, like you say, it's, it's so personal. Um, and it is giving so much back. I, I want to speculate with you. I'm interested to know what you think. Selma took a step back after Dr. Right. King went there in 1965. Right. Do you think we'd be looking at a different America if he had not been put down in the way that he was in 1968?
0: I think so. I think so. Dr. King uh, was probably, uh, not probably, definitely, the most forward-thinking leader, um, that I have had the pleasure of studying. And part of his forward thinking was an iterative approach to his strategy and his tactics. Uh, he would never rely on a tactic if it wasn't successful, and he always did post-mortems on his uh, protest, uh, on his strategies and tactics. He reached a point after Selma where he realized that what was really infecting America was two-pronged representation, but also our views on how capital would be shared in this country. And that underlying um, view was really what gave the teeth to the, types of conditions that blacks found themselves in when a person has no capital in a capitalist society the choices you have become the choices that you can buy and if you have no money you have no choices because you can't buy those choices those choices you get are those that are given to you and so dr king saw that that black companies weren't getting choices at contracts that black employees, though they would were unionize, weren't getting opportunities at jobs. And so as he dug deeper, he saw that that problem was not a black problem. That was an American problem and it was infecting poor people of all colors. And so he evolved his thinking from being just one focused on nonviolent reform to one that was now going to be pushing nonviolent revolution. And that's when he began to think long and hard about the poor people's movement because the poor people's movement was aimed at addressing those systemic problems around how capital was allocated in America. And he wanted to attack that at its core. And part of the first things that he wanted to do to, Bring attention to that was to return right back to Washington D.C. with a poor people's march, and to set up camps, and to make issue make known the issues that poor people were facing in the country, and to again show that that had more than just one face, one color, and that if America didn't address it, it would find itself in a far more dire situation than they were facing in 1965 if these issues weren't addressed. So yes, I think if Dr. King had survived the assassination attempt and could have continued with this movement, he would have brought forth many of the problems that we're now starting to feel the effects of, the types of economies where we hear language like the 1%, that issue would have been addressed in the 60s and we'd probably be facing on a global level a uh, a different type of world where more people would have access to the capital and the means to live the type of life that dr king envisioned
2: i'm wary of ever putting words into people's mouths and thoughts into people's heads when they're not there to do it themselves but do you think he'd be disappointed to have seen america 60 years later to have seen that wendy's on fire
0: i think he would um I think he would have been, I think he'd be heartbroken on what Selma looks like today versus the Selma he showed up into Mm -hmm. Um, the Selma. He showed up into, he uh, he didn't have social media, but he had social clubs like Jack and Jill Mm -hmm. that could link him to individuals of means that could share their resources with him because Discrimination didn't allow him to stay in hotels. So he, he had a network of people who had resources that could allow him to put, move the, the movement forward. If he tried to come to Selma today, I don't think it would be as easy as it was in 1965 um, because those resources aren't there to, to give him. And what I mean by that is not just rich people. When Dr. King was at Dr. Jackson's house, there were as many as 20 other leaders, Andrew Young and others, who were coming back and forth and staying in that same house with the Jacksons. So you got 20 to 25 people sleeping under one roof, planning the march, and Dr. Jackson has to feed all of those people. Uh, They go to Dr. King like they did with the telephone bill and say, we can't continue to feed 20 to 25 people three meals a day. Dr. King didn't have money to pay them, but he did have the ability to, again, go back to that network, that network of pastors, that social club, and he sent the call out to Black farmers that we need food to feed the people who were planning this march. By that afternoon, they say there was a traffic jam Now, there never was a traffic jam in Selma before. (laughs) But there was a traffic jam of men in wagons with food packed coming to the Ritchie house one by one. Wagons dropping off eggs, dropping off milk, dropping off produce, and, and dropping off vegetables. So much so that they couldn't even fit everything in the house. That was the Selma that Dr. King came to. Those farmers don't exist today. Those farmers got wiped out during the last big major class action suit where they didn't get funds for their farms the way white farmers did. They only recently got those funds when many of those farmers had already died. And so the backbone of those communities that made up the Black Belt South because of that type of discrimination, economic discrimination that he was trying to fight with the poor people's movement, that infrastructure doesn't exist today. So I think he would be extremely disappointed at that, at, at, the, at what, he's, what he's seeing now with George Floyd. I think he'd also be disappointed that leadership has not figured out that the tactics that are needed to uh, affect the change – were already discussed and laid out in a way that could have far more effects. When he started the Poor People's Movement, the first thing he did was published a journal, a report, that talked about what the trends were and what they were seeing in the Northeast. Because the Northeast had never had the type of protest that you saw in Selma, mass nonviolent protests. What they had had was riots, And Dr. King said, hey, riots don't do anything but disrupt. There's no ultimate end, there's no ultimate goal, and there's no ultimate objective. But if we do organized disruption of economies in the Northeast, we can gain the type of attention that we want to get to force the economic change that we want. And so he's talking about shutting down highways leading into Washington, D.C. He's talking about shutting down economic centers so people can't get in to make the money that they don't want to distribute. Mm -hmm. So he's laying out real tactics that have an objective that uh, build on themselves and culminate in getting the type of economic reform that he got with the voting rights legislation on the political side. If he were alive today, he'd go, guys, what's the objective? Why do I see a burning building, but I don't have a burning platform that tells me what's next? How do we harness the energy of people who are being oppressed to say that we can fix this? We're not getting that sort of uh, voice through to the people in a way where that change can occur. And I'm sure he'd be disappointed because it took him lots of people lots of resources to get the word out, to get people in places where they needed to have these types of protests. Today, we have Twitter, we have Instagram, we have Facebook. We have ways of managing and galvanizing ideas and support in ways that you've never seen at any other time in history. And yet we still can't affect the type of change that Dr. King was able to to affect without those types of tools. So, yeah, I think he would he would be very disappointed.
2: Mark Peterson, thank you so much for coming on to talk to us today, not only to educate us some more about Dr. King and his background and events in Selma, but to share with us the story of how you, you are going forward in the spirit that he existed in and trying to effect economic change um, and make people's lives better. And I'd, I think he'd be proud of you. I, I know I don't even know you and I'm so proud of you and I know Allegra love you and I can see why. And thank you so much for telling us about all the good stuff that you're doing. Uh, if anybody listening to this, we do have a lot of listeners in the US, wants to um, drop us a line if you're interested in becoming involved in any of Mark's projects uh, in Selma or Tuskegee um, or anything, wherever you are in the world, if you want to help, uh, do let us know and we'll pass them on to him. But thank you so much.
0: Thank you for having me, and uh, thank you so much for making this time to uh, bring these issues forward. Uh, It's awfully important at this point uh, in history to remind people of the path that people have already walked, because the history, though it doesn't always predict the future, it can provide some guiding footsteps, and so your work is in incredibly important in helping to remind us of the importance of that history and I thank you for doing that.
2: Thank you very much. Join us a bit later on. It's been a somber week necessarily given the subject matter but we are going to bring you a down the pub session to lighten things up a bit. We have got together to debate the most nonsensical bit of folklore ever in history. i At this point, we have not taped it and I'm dreading what they've come up with. So join us for that. And then join us on Monday when we will be talking to Matt Bone about the thing that Matt Bone likes to talk about more than anything else in the world. And that is the Hawker Typhoon. He's been waiting ages to get on and we're thrilled to be able to give him a platform and to bring you some World War II aviation. So join us for that. Don't forget, you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus and we would really appreciate it as we would love to do so.
1: When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers.